At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Body Snatchers were one of just a handful of bands that defined the UK ska revival sound, or two-tone ska as it's now known. The group formed in 1979, but disbanded in 1981, and only released a few singles and some songs on comps. But their legacy remains intact, and their singer, Rhoda Dakar, who we talked to today, continues to be an active musician. She sang vocals on some specials tracks and released a bunch of solo material. She has a great guest vocal spot on the Interrupters song, As We Live. Her new album, Version Girl, releases on May 26th, so make sure you go grab a copy. All right, well, we just watched Dance Craze for the first time a little while back. That was my introduction to the Body Snatchers, which I think kind of stole the show for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been trying to get Rhoda on the show for, for a while now. Yeah, I'm really excited that uh, she agreed to do the show. Big fan of Body Snatchers and her work with the specials and her solo stuff too, and including the new album that she's got out. New album. Got to check it out. So last year you, uh, you, you joined the interrupters on stage at the uh, Brixton Academy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw you made a video about it and uh, the Brixton Academy is a, a venue that you had gone to since you were young. Yeah. That, the nearest I got was I was supposed to go on stage at the end um, when there was a tribute to Ian Dury, except I was in the audience when they announced it, so it took too long for me to get to get <laughs> That's always the worst. So that was that was the nearest I got. But there you go. You did your verse on "As We Live," but you also did a a Body Snatchers song. Yeah, we did "Rock Steady." Yeah. Oh, okay. What was that like to finally get to play the Brixton Academy stage? It was weird because it's uh, because as I said, I've never been on the stage before. Um, it, uh, I stood at the side of the stage. I think and Robbie Williams was about to go on. We were chatting, and he went he went on for this tribute, the injury thing, mm-hmm. and um, so I kind of got a glimpse, but I never got a real look at what it looks like because obviously every venue looks very different from on stage than what it does from in the audience, and 
When I was on stage, I just thought, oh, wow, it's, it's not that big. <laughs> it's what I thought. <laughs> I always thought it was massive because, you know, because obviously I've been going there since I was a kid. But um, from the stage, it doesn't look that big. And I'd, I think part of that is, um, well, it's a good design. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it looked quite. It looked wider than it was deep, which I'm not sure is the case. It may be the case, but obviously it's a cinema, so it's supposed to be wider. You know mm-hmm. that that kind of makes perfect sense. You don't want to be further away from the screen. You want to be be able to see the screen. But um, but yeah, it just uh, and because it's got such a massive rake on it on the on the floor. Um, well, of the stage, not so much, but the the um, the auditorium has a real rake on the on the floor, and um, so it it obviously is a the depth of field goes a bit wonky because it's kind of sloping towards you. So you know, I mean, it's all it's kind of tricks of tricks of the light, as it were, physics basically is tricks of physics. Um, but the floor has a really, really like a, a really big gradient i don't know if you call it a rake but in in america but like it has a gradient on it so it's very steep it, it the slope is very steep and um i remember going to see um uh felicuti that's it i went okay, to see felicuti yeah. there and he played for like three hours or something and i can remember at the end of it well, you know, after a couple of hours, I had to go and have a sit down on one of the steps because my legs were aching from keeping myself upright because it's got such a strong slope. Mm. Keeping yourself upright requires muscles that you don't use very often because you don't. I don't spend a lot of my time trying to keep myself upright. It kind of happens naturally. Oh, wow, yeah. So consequently, after two hours, I was like, I need to go and sit down. My legs are really <laughs> aching. And it was really funny because, um, you know, it's not like I was a child. Uh, you know, it wasn't, sorry, not a child. It wasn't like I was a child or I was like an old woman. I was, you know, sort of fairly fit back then. But, yeah, he, it, I was oh that was hard that was hard but that's because of the slope and so that contributes to the depth of field suggestion of it not looking very like like the back of the room is very far yeah standing on a slope is very tiring on your muscles well i concur sir i don't know how (laughs) you know that but (laughs) i concur no i mean you know it's it's a very steep slope and most um Obviously, most halls aren't built like that, but I mean, cinemas are, but but that was, you know, really bad. And I think the other thing is uh, cinemas that are that kind of size tend not to have, um, they tend to have either seats in them or the kind of configuration is different. But that, because the, the floor has no seats at all now, all the seats have gone. It really does. Well, apparently, they're they're hiding in the basement, so they are still there. Some of them, anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the, there's a very steep. It's a very steep slope from the back of the room to the front. Yeah, a lot of the places that size have kind of like a tiered uh, situation where you can stand. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't have that. It is actually just one. It's one slope, and my, yeah, everywhere, everywhere else I've been like that because obviously they were all built as cinemas. Those kinds of venues. Um, they all have like tiers, but it doesn't have tiers. It's straight down. So, 
Seems like that would cause a real bad crush right at the front of the stage, too, though. Um, well, it doesn't seem to. Not too bad. I mean, it's not so steep that you actually, you know, if you happen to turn around quickly, that you roll all the way to the bottom of the, to the front of the stage. I don't think it's not that bad. But you know, if you drop to sweetie, it might fall all the way to the front. <laughs> you know, and you might be, it might be, you might have end up having a bit of a tear up trying to get it back because yeah. it would be rolling under people's legs. But yeah, you might not want it back. You might not. I mean, it depends, you know, <laughs> depends on how desperate you are, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. And 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 what sort of packaging it was in. If it was in decent <laughs> packaging, it wouldn't matter, would it? Yeah, it might. It might survive. It might be. Yeah, fine. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's not let's not diss the packages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amy uh, interrupted her. She told Kerrang that you were one of her idols. Oh, that's sweet. She said that she was hypnotized by your magnetic energy and the way she commands the stage. I've watched her perform in the movie Dance Craze more times than I can count. Oh, right. Dance Craze. Oh, blimey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dance Craze. It's all artifice, you know. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how the interrupters... Uh, how, how you ended up on that song? Did did they reach out to you? I assume. You mean did they send me a message in English? Reach out. What are you? What are you like? <laughs> <laughs> did they reach out to me. What from the west coast of America? No, it could have been a phone call. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's a more general. Yeah, or it could be through like through a manager. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just <laughs> making <laughs> fun. You know the notion- Oh, please, please do. No, but it's the notion, you know, reach out. There are, there are a few phrases that just have me kind of like rolling in the aisles. Reaching out is one of them. I know. Reaching out is like, it's very like a PR, PR speak. Yeah. I yeah. know. It's nonsense. It's like talking about fan engagement, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. No, did they reach out? No, he texted me. <laughs> How they get your number? Uh. From when I gave it to them. Okay, there you go. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's how you <laughs> I know, mad, eh? Mad. Yeah, he texted yeah, me. Yeah, So, So pretty personal then. Well, it was my phone, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying there was no management involved, nothing like that. No, he texted me. He texted me, yeah. That's what it should <laughs> Sorry, be. Sorry, it's hilarious. No, it's fine. Um, yeah. Anyway, yes. Yeah, he texted me and he said, "We're doing this song. Do you fancy writing a verse?" I went, "Yeah, go on then. Send it me, and I'll and I'll um, see what I can come up with." And that's how it, that's how it was done. Yeah, I think that's probably my favorite song on the record. Oh, good. Yeah, it's a very good album. Mm-hmm. It's a very good album. It's a very good album. Um, yeah, they worked hard on that, but I, you know, it's one of those kind of the lockdown projects where people have nothing else to do, so they put all their energy into whatever it is they're doing and writing. Yeah. I imagine there'll be a few good books come out of lockdown as well. Sure. Um, yeah. Fairly soon. Your new record, uh, mm. Version Girl, it's, it kind of started out from lockdown as well, right? Yeah, it did. It was, uh, it was one of those things where uh, we were in lockdown and then it was, then we were kind of given a bit of, you know, a, a bit of leeway where we could, where you know, a certain number of people could meet together. I don't know. I mean, I can't even remember now. It seems like another lifetime. Um, but we could go into the studio um, and record, but we couldn't. We couldn't go to rehearsal studio. Rehearsal studios were shut, but recording studios were open. So consequently, we could um, 
uh, record. And what so what we did was um, I just thought, oh, you know, I mean, I was just telling someone this a couple of days ago. It's like that thing where um, you've been on tour. Like I was, I had been on tour with the selector. So for one of the few times in my life, I had a little bit of money in the bank. I mean, not a lot, but you know, I had a little bit of money in the bank, and and I thought, I just thought, oh, I should put out a single, you know, like the the thing that just eats money. So you do that, you say, yeah, let's make a single. So and and when we were able to go into the studio, um, I thought, well, let's do a happy sad single. So um, I had the song, an original song that was going to be the A side, the happy song, and then there was um, every day is like Sunday, and I thought. Because I'd been kind of humming that to myself because obviously nobody had any idea what day of the week it was because they were all the same. You know, there was mm. nothing you could do. It was literally like, I don't know what day it is. Um, and the only, the only way you'd find out is if the shops were shut um, or not. And then you think, oh, it must be a Sunday. Um, so, yeah, I've been listening to the Pretenders version of this and I just thought, oh, yeah, it'd be good to do a cover of that. We could do that. So we kind of we kind of orchestrated um, a recording session where I think the we reached the maximum number or something I don't know but anyway we we managed to to record these two tunes the idea being to put a single out and I I really can't even remember how it came about but it must have been something to do with I had done a collab with um, the Dub Pistols. Um, a song called Stand Together, but we'd recorded it like a couple of years before, um, but nothing had happened. And then the album was due to come out and they released the single Stand Together. Um, and that came out literally on Blackout Tuesday. Hmm. <laughs> it came out on that day. It was like, oh, what? Yeah. You know, so, and you know how like release days, there's nothing you can do about what the release day is. It's like, if it's if it's kind of, going to be that day it's going to be that day so anyway so blackout tuesday came and stand together came out and by chance the video that we'd done for stand together some of which had been done sneaky filming in lockdown in a park near my house by my daughter because that's the only <laughs> way we could do it um a, a lot of it was about um you know it, it it was kind of the old 60s footage of um of the march, you know, freedom, freedom rides, and and those kind of marches for people, you know, trying to get a vote, and um, in America, I should point out because that wasn't the case here. Um, yeah, so that came out. The video came out for that, and that tune came out. Stand together, um, literally Blackout Tuesday. So I mean, I was, you know. It was like they were all kind of looking at me going, what are we going to do? We can't, you know, we can't say anything. I went, leave it to me. <laughs> leave it to me, folks. I can say something because I've, you know, it's like this is literally, this is this is my thing. I can I can deal with this. So, I mean, you know, we did put a bit out. But I think the, the single didn't do anything like it should have done. It's a really good tune. But mm-hmm. it didn't do what it should have done because. Timing. Yeah, absolutely. Just one of those terrible things. and. um uh anyway long story short or rather i should have said short story long which is what that was really <laughs> um the record company who put out that uh stand together then said have you got any other you know have you got 
would you like to do a single? And so I said, I might have a little something. And so I sent them, I sent them the B side because I thought, well, I'm not going to send them the A side that, you know, I thought, well, keep that because we had this other this other project going called the Low Tech Form, and the, the logical progression was the Low Tech al- Low Tech Album is what we were going to do. So I thought, well, we'll just keep the A side for the album, and the B side we can we'll give it to the to um, the record label, and if they want to put it out, they can put it out. Anyway, they put it. They decided to put it. They heard it, and they said, yes, we want to put it out. And they said, have you got anything else? Do you want to do two singles? It's like, uh. Oh, okay. Um, and so then you had to have a think. It's like, I, I mean, I genuinely don't even remember what the second recording was, um, which one we recorded second. But anyway, we recorded another single and they ha- heard that and sort of said, do you fancy doing an album? But And we were kind of down the road of doing covers by this time. So it's like, mm-hmm. well, we still can't properly get together. So let's just do a few... You know, yeah, let's just, you know, do some covers and it'll all come out and then it'll all be done and dusted and then when we're over, then we can put out um we can put out um the original stuff. We can do the low tech album and, and I mean one thing led to another. We got an album, but for the for the single, for the original single, Every Day is like Sunday, suddenly there was the the worldwide vinyl crisis. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't put out vinyl, and I think the vinyl for that single arrived ten months after the original single was released. Yeah, I mean, literally right. ten months. It was insane. So, um, so everything then got held up, you know. So, until the vinyl for that arrived, there was no point in trying to put put out something else because everyone would just say, "Oh, they're just you know they're scamming us or whatever." So that put already put a ten month delay. And then, I mean, I don't know, scheduling or whatever. Anyway, so this is something that was probably, we probably finished recording it about two years ago, but it's finally going to come out this year. Um, And, um, yeah, it's one of those things that's like, yeah, I must remember what's on the album and things like that. I mean, I suppose that happens happens quite a lot to people, Um, Mm -hmm. but not very often to me, I have to say. So. We're all kind of in the same boat. I've I've heard of uh, friends bands uh, having wait times as long as eighteen months. Yeah, for a record for a record to get pressed, and then by that point, like you know, members of the band have even changed, and they don't even play those songs anymore. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's 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 kind of a bit of a mad one. It's like it's all over the place. Um, but anyway, here we are. Um, <laughs> it's going to come out. Uh, it's recorded. It's pressed. There's copies. I've seen them. You know, I've um, I've touched them. I've opened them. So it's not just <laughs> well, it's not just empty empty sleeves. I know that there's records in there because I've seen the records. I've opened. I've opened two of them and seen the records. So I know there are real records there. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny old business. Mm-hmm. Was there much thought process to the songs you chose or were they just sort of songs that you liked and felt like would work? Was there much thought process? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was that process though? Uh, it was me thinking. What, you, <laughs> what yeah. do you mean? Yeah, it's me thinking. That's sure. how, that's what thought <laughs> process is. Uh, it's me thinking, how can we do, what song shall we do and what, what might work? 
That's exactly what I thought. And I would think have those thoughts and conversations in in concert with um, Lenny Bignall, who who was the uh, producer. And there were ideas, you know, he might come up with something and I'd be going, oh, yeah, I don't know, and I'd come up with something and he'd go, oh, I don't know. And, you know, mm. so there were, there's like what, there's at least one or two things that never got finished because they just didn't seem, it just didn't seem like they were working. Mm. Or I, I, I mean, or maybe um, I couldn't, I'm trying to think of the word, I couldn't really connect with the vocal. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, because there are songs that you like, but if you can't connect with the vocal, then you don't, you're just going to do a terrible job. So there seems little point in. What were those songs that you uh, didn't feel like worked ultimately? You don't need to know that. Oh, okay. come on. <laughs> no, why? Yeah, those are the fun bits to know. What, look, I mean, what is it? What is it about geezers and this kind of eternal thing about having to have all the details? Oh, we love it. You love don't need to look behind the curtain. <laughs> okay, fine, fine. It's magic. It's nothing to do with you. It's a piece of magic. Songs that I couldn't sing. Yeah, I really. <laughs> you really want to let us know what those ones are, right? I so don't. Yeah. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. Let's go back to the seventies when you were. Uh... I know you were interested in glam rock. You're interested in punk rock. Um, I, I saw that you saw um, Iggy Pop in the mid '70s, and it was a pretty uh, amazing experience. I don't think that's what I said. I think what I said was I was I went to see him because I didn't think he was long for this world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's not quite the same, is it? Really? Sure, sure. Yeah. That's what I said. Same reason I went to see Lou Reed. I mean, I saw Lou Reed probably a couple of years earlier, but I just thought, well, always over. We better see him because we might not get another chance. I mean, you know, it was, um, that was how you thought back then. <laughs> it just seemed like a common sense approach. You know, this may be our last opportunity. Um, so, yeah, that's why I went to see him. I don't, I don't remember the experience at all. I just remember thinking, I mean, it was, you know, it was what you expect of Viggy. It was like he threw himself on the floor and he writhed and he took his shirt off. It was, it was an Iggy Pop show. Um, I don't remember it. I honestly don't remember any more of it, more, more of it yeah. than that. I mean, I've seen him since, you know, and he's, he's very good. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that, that, that settled his stomach. <laughs> oh the relief the relief in the room when he heard that i actually thought it was good (laughs) Uh, i mean no no i thought it was good but yeah i didn't say it was an experience that's exactly what what i actually said was i didn't think it was long for this world yeah because that was those were all the indications yeah uh, i read the the book please kill me like a while back Hmm. and you read that book and you feel like amazed how many of those people survived not only the 70s but the 80s and 90s well i've i've never heard of the book or and or indeed read it so i don't read i mean i i can guess to what you allude it's an oral history of the the this era the the sort of the foundation of punk all right okay well, it's a story of junkies, and basically, B- yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a shocker! Yeah. And, you, <laughs> and you look, and you think, "Wow, look at them! That look at that! Look at that healthy individual! That's a lifestyle <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely hanker after." Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean that's you know it was it was very sad. There were some people who had tragic cases, and you just really wished you could have saved them. But you know, there's nothing you can do if people are. Some people are bent on a lifestyle, and you just have to just kind of just go well, you know. And uh, uh, but I mean, there are people who survived who I never thought would survive. Iggy Pop, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and I, I. I mean, I don't know. Lou Reed survived that era. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were people I knew back then who I'm surprised are still around now. We're not surprised. I'm delighted are still mm-hmm. around now. It's yeah. not, it's not the surprise, but it's the delight really is the good thing. And yeah, a lot of them were around the kind of punk thing, but yeah, it's amazing. And as I remarked to someone the other day, all four original members of the Sex Pistols are still with us. I mean, that was never written in, that was never written on the cards, was it? Amazing. I'm delighted. Mm-hmm. So you, you, Paul Cook, and Steve Jones were close. I, I, you often refer to yourself as their little sister. Yeah, I think that's kind of how I was perceived. Yeah. How did you meet them? Um, well, let's see. It all started back in November 1973. <laughs> I was stood outside um, Roxy Music playing at the Rainbow in London, Finsbury Park. And me and my mate, I'm sh- was I with Jenny Bishop? I don't know. But my mate Benny Bish, about whom I've written a song, I don't know if you've ever heard it, um, from Benny Bish to Toothless Anne, and sadly didn't make it. Um, but yeah, we we the kids used to try and bunk. We used we call it bunking, but you probably would say sneaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was a whole tradition of going to get in, gigs and seeing if you could sneak in round the back or something like that. And um, we were at, we went there and met up with a whole load of other kids, all trying to do the same thing but not able to. And I mean, some of those people I still know to this very day. Um, interestingly, Paul and Steve did manage to bunk into that gig. Like, <laughs> like, I remember chatting it, chatting one time. I said, oh, yeah, we went to that. Yeah, yeah, we snuck in round the back. It's like, no, you didn't. But they got in anyway. We didn't get in. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but they were a bit older and just, you know, a bit more, had a bit more guile, shall we say. Um, we were, what, 14? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. bless us. Like, we were, you know, we were kids. We were kids. We didn't, we didn't know how you really snuck into a gig. Anyway, so yeah, it was a big group. And among those people was Jill Price, who was, um, who later became, later she went out with Paul Weller, but she lived in Bromley. So she knew all these people from Bromley, like Susie Sue, Steve Severin, whatever. I mean, you know, all the kind of, the people who became the Bromley contingent. And, so she said to us, we all used to hang out, she said, oh, look, there's this this really good club um, where, like, you know, a lot of people I know are going, we should go. So we all went to this club called Louise's, and that's in in um, in Soho. Um, because, I mean, it was a lesbian club, and it was one of the few places where people who dressed like us could go and be safe because everybody was an outsider there, so we were safe. You know, because you you couldn't always go in places. This these were this was you know probably just before the time that punks were really vilified, but we were pretty much vilified just for being odd and dressing weirdly and whatever. So anyway, we started going to 
to um, Louise's and uh, that's where I met the Pistols anyway. So that's where they used to hang out down there. But so did so many other people. I mean, obviously, Sue, Steve, Billy Idol. Um, who else was there? Uh, a guy called Berlin, who I think wrote a book. Uh, um, trying to think who else. Um, oh, yeah, famous famous kind of club people like Philip Salon. Um, yeah. Trying to think, there's like a massive. There's a whole list of it. You know, it was like it was a place to be. Put it that way. Um, so, and I think, uh, oh Jordan and um, Vivian and Malcolm from you know, they, everyone, everyone was in and out of there at some point. Anyway, so that's where I first met Paul and Steve. And, and my mates was going out with, started going out with Paul, and so. Um, you know, I'd just be like the the mate because we were so young. Mm-hmm. I would be the mate when they started to make a bit of money and they actually they bought a flat. I used to just go around there to be the you know the third wheel sort of thing or whatever. I don't know, but yeah, it was it was nice. I used to wake up in the morning, like you know, stay there on a Saturday night, and I would sleep on the sofa and wake up in the morning and they'd, they had this really good collection of skinhead reggae. So I used to DJ that in the morning when I woke up. So it's kind of where I first curated a playlist. But, uh, yeah, they had all the records that I couldn't afford at the time. So. <laughs> the uh, the Harder They Come soundtrack was one that um, they had that you really liked? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd seen the film, but I didn't have the album. So it was great. To, it was great to be able to play it. And get to know it, you know. So, okay, fast forward a few years. Um, mm. Body Snatchers forms in uh, 1979. Mm-hmm. You're the final piece to this puzzle. I am. Yeah. So Shane McGowan, he's from Pogues now, but back then he was in a band called The Nips. Yeah. He introduced you to Nikki Summers, the bassist, and that's how you ended up joining? Yeah. And you 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 came to the rehearsal and saying, do the rock steady, and you were in. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, basically. Had they auditioned anybody else before you, or was anybody else filling in on vocals? No idea. Didn't bother <laughs> asking. <laughs> Didn't care. Sure. Uh, I read. I read some article, um, and uh, sounds like the n- many names were considered. Oh my lord! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Body Snatchers wasn't necessarily one that you loved. Yeah, it's the one we hated all hated the least. That is exactly right. <laughs> But the film had there had been the remake, the film uh, ah. with, I believe Donald Donald Sutherland, mm-hmm. and a remake had come out, so that was why that got mentioned, I suppose. One name considered was Pussy Galore. Yeah, <laughs> which you know now nothing, but then impossible. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> you laugh. It would have been awful. It would have. Been, it would have. It's not a good name. That's why I laugh because it's just, just such an obviously not right name. Well, it was perfectly good for J- for a James Bond movie. Sure. <laughs> At the early rehearsals, uh, I also read you say that you weren't you guys weren't good yet, but you were unbelievably confident. Yeah, yeah, confident beyond our abilities. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely remember when I was young playing music, feeling that way too. Just anything I did was amazing. And, you know, you listen back to recordings, you're like, oh, okay, maybe not. 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, you know, this is just after punk. Remember, mm-hmm. so I'd seen some really terrible bands by this time. People who really couldn't play or were just awful and whatever. So we weren't as bad as the worst of them, and we weren't as good as the best of them. So the fact that we could get away with it, I think, is what what made me think, uh, yeah, we can do this. We can get away with this. On your second show, you're opening for the Nips, and uh, so there's like Jerry Dammers. There's a, a I think Pauline Black. There's other like two tone people are there. Yeah, it was it was um, Juliet Wills who was the selectors manager at the time, but she's now Billy Bragg's manager. Hmm. Yeah, so she was there too. Were they all kind of checking you guys out, or were they there just there? No, they come to see us. They come to they come specifically come to see us because if they'd just been there by accident, <laughs> they probably would have missed the support band. Sure. Yeah. As I often do. I mean, you know, if you go to see a band, you go see that band. You don't necessarily come to go see the support band. Was that when, so Jerry, did he sign you after, or offer you a, a deal after that gig? Um, Two-Tone offered us a deal. Um, I mean, not straight away, but Two-Tone offered us a deal, yeah. But, I mean, there was a proviso. We had to go on the tour, and if we didn't want to go on the tour, then we couldn't sign for them. But they weren't the only people offering us a deal at the time. Who else was offering you deals at that time? Oh, we talked to people from at least two other labels who were offering us album deals, which probably would have been a better move, you know, in retrospect. But then um, for the logical progression of one's career, it would have been a better move. But on the B side to that is we then wouldn't have had the um, experience of playing on that on that tour and we wouldn't have been on dance craze so i mean not that that really did anything for us at the time um but i think it definitely um gave us it gave it it gave us an, a, a ready-made audience mm-hmm. yeah i mean at the time when two-tone offered you to deal there was no way to know that you know by the time you did the two singles that the band would be struck you know that that ska would not really be as popular as it was when you started and that you would have problems within the band and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean. Well, yeah, but you see, we were the only people who had been art, who had been required to do a two single deal. So everyone else did one single, which oh. would have been a hit. And then they got to sign with someone else. They made us do two singles and that was, it just kind of, if we'd only had to do one, we then could have gone on to sign with someone else. But because we were required to do a second single, it made it really difficult. And um, because it didn't do as well, there was nobody there at the end to say, oh, do you want to sign for an album? So we, it really, it kind of really, really stymied um, our, our possibilities by insisting that we did two singles. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a good move for us at all in the end. Yeah, I could see that. So when you played that uh when you played that second show that we talked about, mm. it was all covers but you uh the boiler was uh the one original. Yeah, I don't remember if we'd had another original song by the second show, but for the first show we certainly only had one original song, that which was the boiler. Mm. So my understanding is that the band came up with a riff and was like 
kind of you know asked you to come up with vocals and because you have like because you had like a background in theater you approached it more like a scene than like singing a verse chorus if you will um yeah they didn't ask me to come up with something they they were just kind of playing this riff and i just started telling a story basically so like a an improv over it and that's what it led to yeah did it come out pretty much how we know it now or was it different it was different every time because it was improvised the lyrics weren't written down so it was different every time at that point um yeah it was an improvisation and i would sort of talk around the story till i got to the point i wanted to and they would just kind of riff on this background until until um it got to a certain point and you know i would then they would up the up the pace or up the um the volume and then the a riff another riff like would come in and stuff like that so you know they would kind of follow me basically well because i didn't know where it was going so they kind of had to yeah i see now was there i don't know if this was true but um i did read somewhere that you guys wanted to release it as a single but chrysalis said we don't think so that's absolutely the wrong way around. I think Jerry wanted to release it as a single, and the band said no. Oh, okay. The band was like, "This is not a single." Yeah, they didn't. They didn't want to do it. I see. Well, how did you feel about it? I have no memory of how I felt about it. <laughs> if I'm honest, there sure. Were other, there were more important things to retain at that point, mm-hmm. and that, I'm afraid, you know, that got dumped. What I thought about it at the time. I never thought it was going to be a single. I see. I mean, it's pretty intense for a single, even by today's standards. Yeah, I mean, you know, who knows? We'd, you're kind of at the point where you're breaking barriers mm-hmm. back then anyway. I mean, the thing is, we were seven women in a band. Anytime we did anything, we would go to meetings en masse. We would turn up at places en masse. So everything was kind of different anyway. Um, there were other f- all-female bands, but they were in you know, it was, they were kind of much more, I mean, we were like, we were pop, you know, we were kind of mainstream pop band. We weren't really, and I, and I don't mean in that in any pejorative sense. I mean that we were a band that, um, you know, teenage magazines talked about and stuff like that. We were, you know, we were a pop band. Two Tone was pop at that point. It was what was happening all over the country. So we were a pop band. So, um, it probably wouldn't have been the right thing for a pop band to release. But there again, you know, we released a single at the point where um, the shine was going off the whole movement. And it probably could have been saved or saved. That's not really a good word. But like, I'm sure um, in marketing terms, things could have been handled better. But they weren't. And, And it is what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of, kind of back to your point about being pop, two-tone being pop. Mm. Punk came before, and punk was, uh, we, we think of punk, of punk's legacy, but punk wasn't really pop at that point, right? Like, not the way two-tone became pop. No, exactly. It wasn't at all. I mean, it was always much less um, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, there were There were kind of new punk, stroke new wave bands who did become pop but that was due to the fact that of the kinds of tunes they wrote not 
the content of the tune, but the you know maybe the musical arc. So I'm thinking of like bands like the Undertones or um, the Buzzcocks. I mean, they they became you know they they appeared on top of the pops and things like that. But they wrote because they wrote power pop, incredible power pop tunes. So, but they were also um, part of their their legacy and their where they'd started was punk. I mean, you know, the jam, the jam was around at the same time and they were on top of the pops. I mean, they weren't a punk band, but they were, they'd started at the same time, or at least they were, they had become popular at the same time. You could say punk adjacent, right? Well, if you're American, you, you could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody in the UK would ever say that. Right. Okay. No. So yeah, as it's for you, yes, you could say that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you could reach out and say punk adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word! You got me. <laughs> the death of a language. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> but when you saw when you saw ska two tone ska start to blow up with like uh, specials with uh, gangsters and all this, it it emerged as pop music. Was that your perspective? Well, I mean, pop music is really only short for popular music. So what is really popular? What sells a lot? What what is in the charts? That's what pop music is. So did it get in the charts? Yes. Did it sell a lot? Yes. So yeah, it's pop music. You know, so by definition, it is pop. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, Susie and the Banshees became pop because I can certainly remember seeing Sue top of the pops same day we were same you know same time we were there so yeah i mean it's whatever becomes popular um oh there you go bit of bit of wicked <laughs> <laughs> yes there we go alluding to broadway the broadway musical there's something i could not talk for hours about but my daughter on the other hand whoa <laughs> um and especially that that particular show um but yeah, I mean, pop music is popular music. So does it sell a lot? Is it on the telly? You know, is it on the radio? Yeah. So it's pop. You know, what else it is? It was more palatable or maybe, I mean, Two-Tone and, and these bands were, were had political messages and whatnot. But mm. punk, I think like the establishment, if you will, the people, you know, there was a, a rejection of that by a lot of people. Did, did ska, these bands come out? Did it feel a little bit? more you know a little easier on on mainstream england um well you probably have to ask mainstream england but i mean i'm not you know i'm i am not i'm neither of those things um but i think uh punk have been set up as bad boys that was they they are the bad they were the bad boys and you know the the classic bill grundy thing is like was set up they were set up as as bad boys and so um that then reflected on everything else i see there was no seminal you know there was no bill grundy moment for uh for two tone and i think um the political message was snuck in under the wire i don't think people really really realized and at the point where we're singing free nelson mandela i don't most people didn't know who he was, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
there were Tories who were frothing at the mouth. Tories are Republicans to you, um, who were frothing at the mouth saying, but he's a terrorist, you know. But nobody ever, you know, there was no, you, you couldn't really push back on it because it had been a hit and it was like, yeah, free Nelson Mandela, yeah, yeah, you know. And you and once it's become something that people have sung along to, it's very difficult to push back on it. So there, what the, I mean, it's almost like you learn the lessons of punk and you hide your messages. Um, you know, I don't know, you hide your messages under the sweet corn or under the mash or something else, which is something that people do for children. You know, they hide yeah. the food that they that they want them to eat in something that they will eat. So yeah. it was mm-hmm. almost it was almost done like that because so many bands were like putting out, you know, there was there was sort of politics in the music and people didn't really, it, it, they were singing along to it without realizing what it was exactly. That's the best way to get somebody on your side. Well, it's the best way to start to get them on your side. You have to, in order to keep them on side, they then have to understand and learn them learn the lessons of the message. Mm-hmm. But you know, if they don't. It, 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 there's no point in them missing the point forever because nothing will change. Yeah. I think, though, that um, maybe, though, like if your audience is young and hasn't made up their mind, you have like a lot more in towards bringing them in with the music and then teaching the politics. Oh, you sound like an indoctrinator, man. (laughs) (laughs) I was not doing anything of the sort. I was a young person saying what I thought, um, but saying it with a great tune. And so, you know, um, I don't think it could be argued with in that sense. I mean, and also the the politics of of what we looked like as well. So you have bands that are made up of, black people and white people and there are bands that are all women and some of them some of those women are even black i mean you know all of that makes a massive political statement before you even say word one you know i i say this more as like my i don't say this as an indoctrinator but you know no, a, that's what it sounded like though <laughs> <laughs> i was a kid who grew up in a in a you know a religious right-wing family who kind of learn more about the world through punk and ska. So I think oh, more from word. that point of view. <laughs> oh my lord. So did you get deprogrammed then? So, or was it was it that bad? Or was it uh... <laughs> I am deprogrammed, if that's what you're asking. And music music played a point, yeah. Well, this is cool, but I went to religious schools. So I went to two religious schools. All my schooling was in religious schools. But when I say a religious school in the UK, it's totally unlike what you're thinking. I mean a religious school here is uh and I didn't go to Catholic school it was uh, Protestant and um so I I sang hymns every day at school and heard um you know sort of tracts from the bible every day but it turned me into a socialist well that's a dirty word for you <laughs> turned me into a socialist because for me if you have honestly understood I mean, I I should also point out I was always an atheist and I remain an atheist, so it never actually turned me. But the message was a message of socialism. So how anyone can not can claim to be a fundamental fundamentalist Christian and not understand that that is the the inevitable end point of that? 
argument mm. is socialism is like, well, were you reading the same bit as me? You can't have been, you know, <laughs> you can't have been reading what I was reading because that, you know, everyone I know, all the people I went to school with all ended up being socialists because of like, because of this, um, this religious, religious, um, not indoctrination, but like, you know, we, we listen to it every day and the bit that I suppose you can always, the thing about that is you can always pick and choose what you tell people, but you know, it's, it was all about love thy neighbor as thyself. And I can't understand how anyone can come to any other conclusion. Mm-hmm. After after reading that, and I'm sorry that went down a very very sensible and serious. <laughs> um, I I definitely understand, and I could see that point of view of like why if you if you read the Bible and if you listen to these teachings, it, it is like so, socialism and stuff like that. But the way it was filtered in where I grew up was absolutely not that, and that's the way mm. a lot of religious people, particularly here in the U.S., are just they take it into a completely different direction and, you know, yeah, this, yeah, it's a different message and yeah, not a good one. Um, well, it's not the Jesus message. It's, it's a, not the Jesus. It's message. not Abs- the Jesus yeah. message. And I think that's, that's the point, isn't it? The yeah. point is it's not the Jesus message. And, it, and honestly, if that's what they're, it's, they're kind of, they're making it up basically and making it up. It It's like the days when people couldn't read. So they believe what the priest told them. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. And on to onto something <laughs> lighter and more palatable. Yeah, sure. Okay. I want to talk about the song, Ruder Than You, because I, I, you guys wrote it with uh, Gaz Mayall, right? Well, me and Gaz wrote it. Oh, you and Gaz wrote it. It okay. was just me and Gaz, yeah. So tell people who Gaz is first. Gaz is John Mayall's son. So John Mayall of the Blues Breakers or whatever, the, the, the blues artist. Um, English blues, white English blues artist, I should point out. Gaz is his son. Yeah, John, uh, he like predates a lot of the um, the 60s uh, British invasion blues-influenced acts. Yeah. yeah. So he's, yeah, he's, those acts were influenced by American blues artists, but also John was an influential element too, and he, a lot of those musicians started in his band as well. Okay, well, I don't know about that, I'll be honest. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. But who cares about John? Let's talk about no, 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 no. Just my, not my area of uh, not my expertise. area of expertise, yeah. sir. You sure. know, I can I can bore you about how I think Jesus leads you to socialism, but you know, John Mayall, no idea. Because I never met him either. That's the thing. I never met him. I knew a lot of Gaz's. I met his siblings and his mum. I never met his dad. So I I actually know uh, a fair amount about John only because I wrote for um, weekly newspapers for a long time, and he came through town all the time. So I'd always write after write a oh, blurb okay. about him. So I end up like learning all this history about John Mayall. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so there you yeah go. that's so good. <laughs> nice. Look, you know, if you learn something, learning something useful is never a bad thing. Increasing your knowledge um, is never a bad thing. It only no. makes you a bigger person. But I do say knowledge and not propaganda. Yeah. Anyway. And back in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gaz, I, what was the, he, he had a shop, right? This kind of predates two-tone. Yeah, okay. So there was this place called Kensington Market, which was, I had no idea really how it came about, but basically there was this 
it was like a row of shops in in uh, Kensington High Street. It was in the days when Kensington High Street was the centre of the shopping universe for young people. And there was Bieber there, which is where I saw they had like this venue at the very top called Rainbow Room where I'd seen the New York Dolls. Um, and then a bit along from there, there was this place called Kensington Market, which was basically this kind of falling down set of interconnecting shops. And um, they, it was not, they were like, it was on about three floors, but it was kind of, it was incredible. It was like a rabbit's warren in there. And people rented little corners and had their own shops. And my friends, I, um, one of my friends who I'd met outside the Rainbow back in 1973 had started a shop. He he had his own stall in there. And um, so, and I think maybe a couple of months after he opened his, then um, Gaz opened his one, which was literally just around the corner. And, you know, he's a big character, so we like, we'd, we'd chat. And Gaz would have his thing because Gaz, um, he lived uh, right near Hyde Park. What's Hyde Park? Yeah, he lived right near Hyde Park, and so um, we sometimes. And he had a basement, and and then you know we were of the age where most of us didn't have. You couldn't. We didn't have an entrance to our own bit of the world. You know, we had to go through our parents' house, and he lived in the basement of his parents' house. So, and you could go straight in, and he had his own his own loo and a, a little bit of kind of kitchenette thing. And so he had his own his own gaff, as it were, his own place. So people used to go there and hang out, and he had like this massive record collection, which was partly his dad's, I imagine, but also he was kind of obsessive about buying records. So you'd go down there and he'd like play you music. He'd play music. Have you heard this? Have you heard this? You know, and had this encyclopedic knowledge. and um, And also he had a piano in there, you know. So um, people, you kind of hang out at his place and listen to music. And, you know, if you're really lucky, make you a mixtape, which was a big deal back then, you know. So you had like a sort of a little a set of tunes that you'd never heard of before and probably never would again since, but, uh, you know, afterwards. But, yeah, so Gaz used to do that. So, uh, I mean, he's, you know... <sighs> Why did we end up? He said to me, "You need an anthem," and so we. I was round his place, and we wrote one. That's that's all. You need an anthem. That's what he said. You need an anthem. <laughs> yeah, he said you need an anthem. The wise words of Gaz Mail. You need an anthem. Let's write one. So we did. Just like that. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we did, and I took it to the band. Or it, well, I think we took it to band. He must have had to play it as well because it, it would have been, you know, I didn't play it, he played it. But, yeah, that's what happened. We wrote it and took it to the band. So, okay, I want to talk about um, the two-tone tour that we talked about earlier. That was the summer of 80 with uh, Specials and Go-Go's and, and Body Snatchers. That was called the Seaside Tour. Oh, that okay. wasn't Yeah, the two-tone tour would had been in 79. The next tour in March 80 was with the Selector and Holly and the Italians originally and us, which was actually a Selector's tour. I mean, it's known as the second two-tone tour, but it wasn't really. Oh, uh, okay. And then in the summer, there was the Seaside tour, 
which was the specials, the body snatchers, and the go-go's. So now you're touring and you're playing constantly. This is, um, I, I think, I, I think I've seen you say that it was the, the two-tone tour, so the selector tour, where you really started to feel like the band was getting their chops from, you know, from relentless touring. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's how you, it's the 10,000 hours, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, until you've done it, you, you aren't any good. And uh, we kind of, I think in that that year that we were together, we played about 200 shows. It was a ridiculous number of shows. Wow. So we did, we did, you know, you, you do get good mm-hmm. if you play enough. And, you know, and so we did. Now the on the on the selector tour, there's a a little fun little story I read. Um, some journalists were asking you questions. You didn't like the band didn't like their questions, so they pulled out water soakers and soaked them. Water pistols. Water, water soakers um, are a bit later in history. Water <laughs> <Okay>. pistols, <laughs> the small version, are what we had. Yeah, we just yeah, it was I can't remember what it was record or something. <laughs> yeah, we just we um in fact I think there's a I think there's a there is a a cover of a record there's a cover of a of a music magazine with us with water pistols to our heads and those were the the very water pistols. <laughs> the infamous water pistols. Yeah. They are the very water pistols, yeah. I mean, you know, it's boring being on tour. You've got to do something for fun. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's let's talk about dance craze a little bit. Mm-hmm. When was the footage shot? Do you know what, where and when? No. Was it on any <laughs> of these tours? <laughs> yes. I mean, surely you can get this from the press sheet. Do you have to ask me? I, I, I don't know. She's going to squirt you with those water guns. I'm <laughs> really not because okay. I'm in London and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, they have those super soakers now, now, though. You might be able to reach from them. No, it's physics. Physics, love. Physics. <laughs> I can't actually reach you with a water with a water pistol from here. Um, true, true. Yeah. Okay. God, I'm so pleased. Mr. Khan, thank you for your physics classes. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to explain it otherwise. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know when it was. I mean, all that information must be available. It was all fil- It was all filmed in in um, nineteen eighty, as far as I know. Yeah, that's all I can tell you. I've no idea what gigs. I don't remember. It wasn't one gig. It was loads. So I've so I've no idea. Was there more films than what we see? Like, were there the cameramen around a lot? Probably. Do you remember the camera people getting in your way when you're on stage? Oh, good lord, no, man! I don't remember. No. It was forty. It was forty-three years ago. Why would I remember <laughs> what that was like? I don't know. Some of those things stick out. Sometimes they end up unplugging something, stepping on the <laughs> pedal or something. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I think you need to have this conversation with someone else. Oh, I, right, I can't sorry. remember. I can't remember. No, you don't need to apologize. I'm just saying I don't remember. Sure. I have no memory whatsoever of being filmed. At those, at, I, I mean, I, I saw the film the other day for the first time, and I have no memory of it. It was like, oh, blimey, that doesn't sound as bad as I thought it would. <laughs> so that was that was literally the only thing I thought when I came out of it. It was like, oh, that screen's a bit close, and blimey, mm. I don't remember it sounding that good. Is literally all I thought when I, you know, when I, having watched it. Yeah, I just watched it for the first time recently, and the thing I was yeah. the most taken with was how packed in the audience was. Mm. Like they, 
and you can't really see them a ton because the footage is so dark. But then whenever the stage lights hit them, yeah, you can really see like it's just like a sea of bodies. Well, yeah, because we didn't have they didn't have things like crash bar uh, crash barriers and stuff mm. back then. So mm. the band were uh, sorry, the audience were right up to the stage and mm. could get on stage quite easily, quite often. Right. So. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone would be, you know, people's faces would be right under yours. There was no, there was no distance. There were no, and if there was security, it would have been security you brought with you. So there wasn't venue security, things like that. No venue security. Okay. No, no, no. There was no, there was nobody to, you know, that, that whole notion is, is, is um sort of fairly recent. I mean, in America, I'm trying to think, I don't. I mean, I don't remember. What did I do in America? In America, I climbed on stage from the audience. I know I did. Because <laughs> when I went there, when well, I went there with the specials in 81, and I know because I often did it, is I would be in the audience and they would call me and I would be in, I would get on stage from the audience. So I know it was the same in America because mm -hmm. I did the same thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, there wasn't there wasn't the security, so I mean, heaven forfend that anything really terrible had happened. I don't. It's almost just by accident. It didn't. Um, mm. It wasn't by design. Definitely, you know, anything could have happened. I remember being on stage and looking down, especially on that seaside tour, and you play at the end of a pier. I remember looking down through a hole in the stage, and I could see the sea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little unnerving. Well, you know, you just think, well, it's held, held up all this this time. <laughs> as long as I get off all right, I think we'll be okay. But yeah. <laughs> as long as it doesn't fall through during your set. Well, I mean, the Go-Go's had already been on by this time. So when we, we came on, I thought, well, the Go-Go's survived it, so we probably can. Uh, it's only the it's only the specials and the two hundred people they invite on stage with them that have got to survive the next bit. <laughs> and stages did break when they, you know, there would there would be accidents where stages broke and people didn't. I don't know. Nobody seemed to mind. Now it'd be lawsuits and you know, and the M MPs up in arms. But back then, nobody particularly bothered. Especially it's, it's young people. It's young people going to see a band. They aren't people that anybody cared about. Your first time seeing Dance Craze, was that at the IMAX Waterloo event? Yeah. Yeah. This was like, uh, I guess, because they, they're just, it's just gotten remastered and all that and reissued. Yeah. You, you participated in the event too, the Q&A? Um, eventually, yes. That's because <laughs> I might. Well, I wasn't supposed to, but I, I just complained to the guy who was, do, who was running it. He happened to be sitting a couple of seats away from me while we were watching it and I just ribbed him about um about not asking me to come and join in so eventually so he went and got me a chair <laughs> to join in <laughs> I suppose uh, you know hoping that I wouldn't ask difficult questions so it's probably easier to have me on the panel than it is to have me in the audience <laughs> what was that event like everybody everybody reminiscing about dance craze and all this I suppose so I mean, it's bizarre. It's it's a bizarre. I d look, what can I say? It's I feel as it it's it doesn't feel like it's anything to do with me. It's very weird. I mean, you know, and I know dance craze was really important for lots of people. So I don't want to 
you know, I don't want to decry it in any way, but it's not something, I don't know, for me, that kind of mod ethos of onwards and upwards is what's important. You can look back at what was and enjoy it and appreciate for what it was. But actually, my gaze is always to the horizon. It's not to, you know, it's not to what what went before. Dance craze seemed to have like, um, like in a way, it had more importance in the U.S. because a lot we didn't, or you know, kids in the '80s didn't get to see most of the bands. Yeah. So they got to see dance craze instead. Yeah, I mean, and it was it had its own culture, which is nothing to do with me. It happened. It was because of us but it didn't include us. It wasn't about us really. And it wasn't for us. And that's great. You know, it was for those people to make of it what they did. It wasn't for us. So it was, you know, I'm kind of like, it's it's almost like, um, imagine being the person who the Venus to Milo is is based on, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, it's an iconic piece of art, but nothing to do with the person who's kind of (laughs) who was who was the original idea idea for it do you see what i mean so Mm -hmm. it's that's my relationship it's like i'm like the person who sat for the venus to me i don't know if you really sit for a sculpture it'd be be a bit of a long job but do you see what i mean it's like um it's that's the relationship i was there and i was filmed um, and maybe, and I'm not saying this is how everyone else feels. It's just how I feel. It's like yeah. it doesn't feel like it's anything to do with me. It happened. I was there, but I didn't make it happen. Somebody else made it happen. Those were the people who made the film. And really, their take is the most important one. And also, people in the audience, people who loved the film. But I'm not either of those people. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel very distanced from it. And Bonnie Snatchers had broken up too by the time the film was even released. Precisely. I think specials had broken up too. I mean, it was no, no, they no. Hadn't. Oh, okay. No, okay. no, no, no. Because at the point that um, I think that Dance Craze came out, I, I was was either on tour, were going on tour with the specials. So yeah, specials broke up after Dance Craze. Oh, okay. As far as I remember, because I remember sit, I remember going to the premiere in London, and I'm sure it was before. Anyway, well, it might not be. You might be right. You know, my memory isn't never was much good. It's even worse now. <laughs> I'm not sure because I remember Roddy Radiation told me that he didn't go to the premiere because I think that's when everything blew up at the premiere. Oh, possibly. Who knows? It was a very yeah. long time ago. Yeah, exactly. Who knows? But Scott wasn't really the the flavor of the month when it released in England as well. The lick is what Don Don Letts would describe it as. The lick, lo- yeah, it wasn't really the lick. I love it. I lo- it's a great, it's a great description. It's a great short description. Yeah, it wasn't really the lick. It wasn't. You know, it was it kind of gone off the boil, and um, people had turned their heads to the next thing, which by that time was a kind of you know, I don't know. It was kind of blitz kids and and sort of dressing up and all of that, which was also cool. You know, I went along to a few of those. Good. Interesting. The song you sang uh, with specials, um, the the song that you sang with Terry, the I Can't Stand It. Mm. I really like that song. I love the vocal interplay between the two of you. It's a nice sound because it, it really sounds like two 
equal people singing together and, and you know, kind of going back and forth and stuff. Well, that's what it is, because, I mean, it's really, it's, um, I think it was probably too low for Terry. I don't, you know, because it wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean, as with a lot of things, if people who write, because Jerry wrote it, but Jerry can't, can't really sing, so he didn't really understand that whole thing about things people having a vocal range and what works for a vocal range. So, um, yeah, that that was kind of weird because mm-hmm. um, we sang it in unison, and I don't think it was particularly right for either of us. So it's kind of you're both struggling to make it work. Nobody thought to just change the key. Oh, I don't think I don't think. The notion of just changing the key. Well, firstly, it was all the backing track was recorded. Gotcha. So, um, and there was no, no way of doing that back then. And also, it never would have occurred to Jerry to 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 write a song in in the right key for anybody. Mm. <laughs> well, because sure. if you can't sing, it doesn't occur to you that actually people can't sing. You know, no, they can't sing this because it's not in their not in their key mm-hmm. i mean you know any oh it's the bane of any vocalist life no <laughs> this isn't the right key for me i really can't you just it's like no no this isn't just like putting it you know you can't just put a capo on a vocal yep like you it's a physical thing if it physically doesn't fit there's nothing i can do about that and it's not about not trying it just doesn't fit sure we all have our limitation um that's not really yeah that's not best description is it what it is is physically people can do things within a certain range yeah and it's not a limitation it's just how your body is made Mm -hmm. you know and it's yes it is a limitation but that's really not the point i was trying to extract from that i have to say (laughs) (laughs) but anyway there we go it is what it is sure after this we get into specials breaking up essentially and Jerry does specials, a.k.a. or special, a.k.a. Okay, so how long are we going to be here then? (laughs) (laughs) I know this was not a great time for you. (laughs) The only part of the experience that you would say was a positive one was when you sang uh, uh, with Elvis Costello in uh, Nelson Mandela. Did I say that? Yes, you said because it said it's a it was a two it was a two year process of being in basically this uncomfortable basement studio um and spending much of the time sitting around i guess as jerry was you know doing what jerry does and um you know not a fun experience but that that was uh, definitely a highlight for you was getting to meet uh, elvis costello yeah that's not really the same as singing with him um so <laughs> yeah he produced <laughs> he produced um the single um, because the record company had insisted that there was somebody to say no, and uh, they deemed that he would be the person most able at this point to say no to Jerry. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was a much more it was a much better experience in that it was shorter for a start, and um, he was in charge and had because he had um, a certain amount of gravitas, he could say, no, that was really good. We don't need to do that another five times. Um, that that one time was okay. But I wouldn't say that it was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, it wasn't it wasn't enjoyable. I mean, I was um, I yeah, it wasn't enjoyable. It was <laughs> no, it was it was just because the thing is, it's like we'd the song had been written as a band, and you know, I'd contributed a verse or whatever, and then by the time it was in the studio, it was all something else. It wasn't it wasn't the band again. It was, and I was kind of pushed out onto the edge and. I don't know. It was, yeah, it was all. I mean, Special OK was no fun at all. So not anything I would ever miss or want to do again. Mm-hmm. So this was a product of Jerry, like, redoing everything over and over and over again, The uh, this two-year period? Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it wasn't fun at all. No, I can, there's nothing fun about that. No. Yeah. You you guys re-recorded or or officially recorded the boiler. Yeah, but that was before. That was like a year before we recorded oh. that in January nineteen eighty one. Oh, okay. And um and Jerry fiddled with it for a year before it came out. I see. So you know that was recorded. Yeah, it was recorded not long after the body snatcher split. So um. That's that was it was Rhoda and the special AK or with the special AK or something, but it wasn't, you know, it was not part of that project because that project didn't start for about another. Well, I mean, in fact, I'm not sure how long I didn't join the project for about another seven or eight months. But the the song was released as a single. Yeah, and no radio stations played it, but it still charted. That's not true. It was played. It was played in the evening, mostly, and then one Saturday, I think it was Capital Radio in London, played it in the afternoon or in the morning or something. It was an entirely inappropriate time to play it when, like, kids are listening to the radio. Um, Because, you know, children listen, little children listen to the radio. It's kind of scary for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And because it was played at a completely inappropriate time, then everyone, you know, then kind of, all hell broke loose and at the same time there was um there was a a case there had been a rape case where um an officer who and i can't remember if he was been in the guards but it was one of the fancy pants um regiments where they you know mostly come from public school and public school to us is private school to you So when we talk about public school, what we mean is um, the big institutions where people pay thousands and thousands of pounds to have their children turn out like Boris Johnson, which almost seems like they've been robbed, but there we are. Um, But that's essentially what it is, and a lot of those people go into the military, and particularly those regiments like the guards where they have fancy uniforms and they do a lot of sort of ceremonial work. and it's not to say they don't go off to war as well, because they do. But, you know, these guys then become officers. Um, they go straight to Sandhurst, They become, which is the officers' college, and they become officers. And, and basically, they, they aren't the people who are in the trenches. But this guy, entitlement, I mean, you know, all those things that we can talk about now, like, you know, he was an entitled white middle-class man who thought that he could get away with rape and the judge, being a white, entitled, middle-class man, thought it was perfectly reasonable he should be able to get away with rape. Mm. And so he didn't, 
he didn't sentence him or something, or he was found guilty but wasn't sentenced. In fact, to be honest, I can't remember exactly, but there was a massive hoo-ha about it in the press. And then I was accused of releasing a single to try and um, garner um, the coverage. You know, oh, you only do it, you only release this because of this story. And it's like, do you know how long it takes to schedule and release a single? There's no way we could have known this was going to happen on this day. Mm-hmm. And so, and then together that, together with somebody playing it at a completely inappropriate time, it, um, it was then removed from all the shops. So it couldn't go any further than, say, 30. Four thirty-two. I can't remember. It couldn't get any higher in the charts because it was removed from the shops. I see. So people couldn't actually buy it. So all the main high street stores like Woolworths, WH Smith, Boots, who also used to, all those shops that used to sell singles, then refused to stock it. So you couldn't buy it. So therefore, it couldn't do any. It couldn't get any but any um further up the charts. But yeah, I mean, had it gone on for another week, I suppose if somebody. If I were a conspiracy theorist, which I'm not, um, I would say that, you know, had it been in the shops for one more week, it would have had to, um, it would have got into top 30, in which case it would have had to be considered for top of the pops because that's how it worked at the time. Um, but yeah, they were saved. They were saved the horror of having to um, possibly have Pan's people dance to it or whatever. I saw your performance of it on the Oxford Roadshow. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was very uh, intense performance. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I mean, it was weird because obviously I then I had to do it to a backing track, so they had to. Um, I had to partly follow a teleprompt, so so uh, you know, so um, it had to all ha- it had to all work properly, and because it wasn't scripted, it was kind of hard. So I was following a teleprompt to make sure it all worked in time with the music. So, that, so I do remember that weird experience. But was there a follow-up song called "Feminist Chauvinist Pig" discussed? Um, it was a song that I did write a song called "Female Chauvinist Pig," but okay. I don't know that I necessarily agree with the what I said anymore. Okay. Um, but um, I mean, it's still a point that there was a point that needed making, but I think that's kind of. Not very, not very clever or particularly well thought out re, um, res, response. But um, I think, uh, on reflection, what I was trying to say is that it's not, um, and it's a point that's, that gets made now is that um, I don't know. I, I I suppose what I'm doing is putting it putting. Um, sort of what I thought 40 years ago, trying to make sense of it. And it's, I think what I was feeling was that um, there was a certain path cut out for women and it should include motherhood and being a wife and all of those things. And that it isn't, there needed to be a redefinition. And you know, we st- people still struggle with the people with uh, the notion of women not having children and making that and having that as a choice, as a life choice. You know, people mm-hmm. still really. What do you mean you don't want children? It's like, well, not everybody does. You know, and that sometimes is a really good thing. But um, 
that wasn't that wasn't even something there wasn't even a word for that really not a word for de- describing that as a life choice back then yeah it's it's become more normalized but it's yeah, still yeah. Like, debated as like whether yeah. whether it's okay where it, you, that, there's no debate about whether a man chooses to have kids or not yeah exactly um yeah it's a completely different and i think that um thinking about it now is that was what i was trying to articulate but never quite but didn't quite grasp it and didn't as something maybe you know revisit the idea and think about it again but it's um so i didn't quite make sense of it so it's probably yeah it's probably best we did i think we did actually write it i don't know if we recorded it but we certainly routined it but yeah that's what that's what that would have been about did you leave music for a good number of years after that experience yeah i left yeah i mean i but people would always kind of drag me in to do something so i did <laughs> like little bits and bobs over the years because somebody would say oh just come and do this come and do that. you know so i did do the odd few bits and bobs but yeah i worked i worked in fashion darling <laughs> perfectly reasonable you were a hand model for a while right well that's not really a full-time job so yeah i mean you know you can be a hand model at any point it doesn't take very long <laughs> so it wasn't my job but yeah i've done I've, i did hand modeling the ska divas t- uh band or tour i'm not sure in 2002 was that sort of the thing that got you pulled back in in a more more regular basis it regularized my interaction <laughs> with the musical world. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, um, I would, but that didn't, I mean, that, that really only lasted for a few gigs. And then um, it kind of reverted back to the selector, which is that's what it was. Essentially, it was the selector kind of, excuse me, the selector kind of, um, re, it's sort of broadening out the idea of the selector at broadening out. So three vocalists, but, um yeah i mean it just kind of went back to the selector and i just guested with them a few times but it was the selector of then not the selector of now different people you did some solo albums um in 2000 i think 15 you did rota sings body snatchers mm. 2014 it was. 2014 okay mm. i assume you were um you were asked a lot about Body snatchers and every body snatchers week. doing a record. Yeah. Every week. At every least week. every every week. No, every month somebody would say, Oh, why don't you get the band back together and do that? And like, firstly, I didn't get the band together in the first place. Secondly, no. So um yeah, and I mean somebody even messaged me like yesterday about putting an album out, oh yeah, of all the <laughs> All the unreleased stuff. And you're like, what unreleased stuff? What are you talking about? There isn't any unreleased body snatcher stuff waiting for some white knight to come and save it and put it out on vinyl. I mean, you know, that's not, it's not there. Mm-hmm. But people are like desperate, desperately believe that it's actually there. And if we just wish hard enough, you know, like <laughs> we just go straight on till morning or whatever it is. I don't know. I really like the the vibe of the record. Um, L- Linval and Horace are both in the backing band. Yeah, well, Horace was in. He was played bass on all the tracks, and Linval came and played on a couple of ones when he was over. This record you recorded 
One day, right? Well, the backing tracks were recorded in one day, yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah, the vocals, you know, some vocals I think were from the day, but some were kind of either, backing vocals were certainly recorded on a separate occasion. But yeah, it was mostly recorded on one day in one studio altogether. Nightmare situation, nightmare idea, never do that. <laughs> Big contrast to in the studio, though. Just, well, uh... yeah, yeah. Amusing, <laughs> amusing aside, yeah. Um, no, I mean it was it was okay. It would have worked had we had better shielding for the drums and had we not had the saxophone in there and all that kind of thing. You know, there's, but you know, lesson learned, as it were, because we, I, because I did it again for, um, for the low tech four EPs. We recorded all together. Um, but that was recorded that, but that's without, so, so there was no sax- saxophone was recorded separately, um, so that it didn't spill and it may even have been recorded at the same time, but just in a different room. Um, and, um, the drums were, sh- were like, you know, it was properly, sh- it was basically, it was done at Paul Weller studio. So like, it's all properly shielded off. It wasn't all sort of make do and mend. It was much more, um, it was kind of set up for that, so it was mm-hmm. the results are much better. Obviously, this came about because you were asked constantly about it, but you mm. you weren't necessarily sure there was an audience, so you wanted to do like a like a fundraiser, like a crowd fundraiser. Well, I did a I did a crowd fund because I didn't have the money to make it. It wouldn't have got made if it hadn't been for crowdfunding. I didn't have any money to record an album, you know. So um, that's why. Yeah, I got you. I, I heard. I saw like, an interview. You said that you also wanted to to know that the, the, the everyone claiming they wanted it were actually on board and not just saying they wanted it. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, if if the crowdfunder hadn't have worked, that would have given me the answer, wouldn't it? And then I couldn't. Then I wouldn't have done it. But yeah, I mean, that is the thing about a crowdfunder. It's like if people will actually put their money with, you know where the hopes are, as it were, then you get the money to, you've at least got an audience. You've got a ready-made audience. I really like, like, so the songs, you know, the, the catalog comes from the things that you released officially and the, the peel sessions and whatnot. The two songs that like stick out to me the most from the Rhoda Sings Body Snatchers were both from peel sessions, um, Ghost of the Vox Continental and Hiawatha. Those were okay. two, I think, that I really enjoyed. Um, Maybe it's because I was less familiar with them. I don't know, um, but possibly, possibly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to hear. Just nice to hear the the all all the songs together in a, you know kind of mm-hmm. a nice recorded same band situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. 
This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.